Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome back to Inside the Hive, taking you inside the news with the people who make and shape it. I'm Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with my co-host, Joe Hagan. Hey, Joe, we have a very exciting show this week. Yes, we do. History is unfolding in front of us in Europe. Terrible things coming through our cable news and social media feeds uh, as we're sort of poised on the knife's edge between like uh, hope and fear over what's going to happen with Ukraine and Russia. And one of the big themes that is emerging in all of this are the oligarchs, the Russian oligarchs, the financial kind of uh, feudal patronage system that has, uh, you know, supports Vladimir Putin. And around the world, we're seeing giant mega yachts being seized and the assets being pursued of these ultra rich, corrupt characters who made their money illegitimately out of the post-Soviet Russian Empire that, and they've, they, these are people who uh, buttress this war that you're seeing, whether indirectly or directly. And so this week we brought on somebody who can tell us about the oligarchs, the world in which they operate, and what it is we might be able to do about it. Her name's Brooke Harrington. She's a professor of sociology at Dartmouth College, author of Capital Without Borders, Wealth Managers and the 1%. Now that's, let me just, if I may, Emily, just tell you about what she did because it's a pretty interesting. She's a sociology professor and so she studies social behavior. But breaking into the world of private money, how offshoring money to avoid taxes and the ways in which oligarchs you know, move their money around the world to avoid oversight is a very difficult one to penetrate, especially for a professor. And what she's done is she actually went and studied wealth management and kind of got herself into a wealth management program so that she can meet them, talk to them, and find out all the secrets of how these people live and work. And so we're going to talk to her today about what it is we're seeing, like pull back the curtain a little bit. She got into all those secrets and the psychology of these oligarchs and and these sanctions and how they could possibly impact uh, these people and the next steps as we continue to stare down what Putin may do and what the West's response to that will be. So it was a fascinating conversation. We're really excited for you to hear. Should we get to it? Yes. And before we do, let me just say, stay tuned because she tells a really, really interesting story about Joe Biden announcing this week this task force klepto capture, which is meant to pressure these oligarchs and seize their uh, assets and weaken them and therefore weaken Putin. She tried to volunteer for this task force, and uh, it's a whole story about what happened when she attempted to do so. So uh, listen closely, and um, you're going to learn something today. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. We are so excited to be here with Brooke Harrington. This is just the perfect week for this conversation. Brooke, welcome to Inside the Hive. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. We have so many questions for you, and I think that the place to start is, please tell us how oligarchs came to be in Russia, what Putin did to perpetuate this system, and then we can sort of get into how they live, uh, the mechanisms 
by which they retain and hold on to their power and money. But but just back up and give us a basic understanding of who these people are, how they came to be, and what the system was that really enabled them to amass wealth the way that they did. Well, my understanding of the history of the oligarchs in Russia is that when formerly state assets were privatized and divvied up, they weren't done with like a a legitimate competitive bidding process. They were handed out like party favors to people who were already close to the regime. At that time, it, it wasn't Putin, but people like Gorbachev and especially Yeltsin. Yeltsin was kind of famously corrupt. So people got rich in in somewhat haphazard ways. Most of the oligarchs got handed these big chunks of things that used to belong to the people of the Soviet Union. And as I understand Putin's modus operandi, it was very much like that of of the mafia bosses you see in, in movies like The Godfather or Goodfellas, where the, the capo hands out big favors or lucrative positions in return for the loyalty of the people who get them. So the idea for the oligarchs was that they would not just enjoy their wealth personally, but go out into the Western world and kind of infiltrate our cultural institutions and governments and civic life in such a way that would advance the interests of this new Russian state. And that's essentially what has happened. So, for example, in in Great Britain, they made the son of an oligarch and, I believe, former KGB agent into a peer of the realm. So the Russian oligarchs are very, very highly placed, not just in the tabloids, which is where you might see them these days, but in political institutions and civic institutions, charitable institutions like Roman Abramovich and his uh, Chelsea-based charity. Um, All of these things are apparently done with an agenda to advance the aims of the Russian state, not of the oligarchs personally or not exclusively in the interests of the oligarchs themselves. Your book, Capital Without Borders, Wealth Managers in the 1%, it's right there in the title, Capital Without Borders. And these oligarchs operate, you know, outside of their home country. And partly because they are moving the money around from their, you know, that that has enriched them, but also Putin's money, right? The money of their sort of oligarchical system is kind of, uh, you know, we know it's being invested in London. We know it's being invested in New York and different places like why do they do that? Why has that happened? And what is the strategy of the oligarchs in the way that they operate globally? Oh, the how part is trivial. I mean, since 100 years, at least, the offshore system has existed to help wealthy people from all over the world shield their assets from the law. And terms like tax haven are kind of a, a misnomer because wealthy people use the offshore system not exclusively and not even mainly for tax avoidance, but for really law avoidance writ large. They want to avoid paying legal judgments, for example, or they want to get out of an expensive divorce, or they want to disinherit their kids if they're from countries where you're not allowed to do that. But then around the 70s, there was this thing called the release of currency controls. It used to be in most countries of the Western world, that you couldn't leave your home country with more than a fixed amount of national currency. And it was pretty small. There's still countries where this is true. And what I've read is that Russia either has or is about to reimpose currency controls on its citizens explicitly to prevent them from taking their assets out of the country. But in the 70s, where those were prevalent all over the world, they began to be dropped to facilitate international trade and and the world we have now with multinational corporations. Because you can't do multinational business. You can't have Starbucks or Apple operating all over the world if there are currency controls, because companies were subject to them too, not just individuals. So when you drop currency controls, you make it possible for individuals and corporations to move their assets around the world with increasing frictionlessness 
That is, you can, you can do it now with the click of a button online. The days of carrying suitcases of cash around, a la John Grisham novels, are long gone. Because that's too easy to crack down on. The more that you have physical assets that you're trying to tote around the world, while it's still done, the more vulnerable you are to getting caught. So typically what you do is you can, with the, the stroke of a pen or a click of a mouse, create offshore companies, trusts, and foundations with the help often of a wealth manager. And then with another click, you can transfer millions or even billions around the world instantaneously into those offshore structures. So that's the how is the easy part. Well, my question is like, um, I, I'm always sort of curious, these oligarchs, so, you know, Roman Abramovich is in, in London. He's sort of famous for having invested so much money into in, in that country in Leningrad, you know, Londongrad, I should say. We hear about, you know, Russian oligarch money in, in Miami and in New York and all these places, but if the money and the lifestyles is operating offshore, why are they loyal to Putin? Because he allows them to be rich. He, he giveth and he taketh away. Do you remember the case of um, Mikhail Khodorovsky, who used to be the chairman of Yukos Oil? I don't know that story, no. Oh, wow. Okay, so it wasn't, wasn't that ancient history. So about 20 years ago, Mikhail Khodorovsky was the richest man in Russia. He was one of the OG oligarchs because he had been gifted one of the country's largest oil companies, Yukos. So he amassed this vast fortune and a lot of power, and he started criticizing Putin's corruption. So just like that, Putin had him tried on trumped-up charges, put him in jail, and seized the vast majority of his fortune, which I think was $50 billion U.S. dollars at the time. And that didn't just have the aim of shutting up Mikhail Khodorovsky personally, but of sending a signal to all the other oligarchs who might be thinking about getting uppity and, and criticizing the mob boss. It showed, you know, he giveth and he taketh away. That's so interesting. And I think that's such a important point that you bring up uh, and, and a little bit of a history lesson because you're starting to see a very small number of these oligarchs speak up about what is happening in Russia now. And given the fact that they know that Putin has the ability and the wherewithal to take us away, as you just explained, it leads me to believe that they are making a calculation about either Putin's strength or their own wealth security that they are comfortable speaking up about this. And I don't know which one it is. Maybe it's a combination that they think that that Putin is so out of control or the West will have their back more than Putin could ever help them or hurt them or if they've just planted enough of their money abroad that it doesn't matter what Putin can do. I, I, I don't know if you have a take on that. You're absolutely right that this is extraordinary. I don't recall ever since Khodorovsky's case, seeing a Russian oligarch publicly criticizing anything that Putin did. I mean, I'm sure they, they may try to speak to him in private and he can ignore them. What's different now is that people like um, Mikhail Friedman, for example, is making statements that are meant to be shared against the war. Um, so is Oleg Deripashka, of all people. I mean, people who are considered to be really tight with Putin. This is extraordinary, and it seems very risky for them. So one of the options I've been mulling over is maybe they think he's really lost it and that he's going to destroy them all if he doesn't knock it off. Um, that while, yes, they risk losing their wealth by speaking out, they're also risking their wealth by not speaking out. For now, that seems like the most plausible explanation for me, which is also a really scary one because that means if that Putin is behaving in a way that his own longtime associates view as profoundly irrational. And people who are that irrational are also very, very dangerous. And that's why there's so much discourse right now about will he or won't he use nuclear weapons. Fiona Hill, who knows Putin well, says, yes, he absolutely would. So that's sort of of a piece with him threatening to drop the 
the International Space Station on Europe in retaliation for any kind of pushback on the Ukraine invasion. Um, it's of a piece with him making these absurd demands like going to Finland and Sweden and saying, you have to promise me you won't join NATO. That's pretty bizarre behavior. And there are a variety of theories I'm sure you've seen in the background that Putin may be terminally ill or have some sort of apocalyptic vision in which he no longer cares what what happens in the future, not even the, the near-term future. The lifestyles of these oligarchs are mainly what people see in, the, in pop culture and on the news. We see these giant yachts. We hear about like um, enormous numbers of apartments in New York City being owned by oligarchs and nobody's even in them. They're just like where they're parking money as an investment, right? And the opulence of it all. Are the oligarchs culturally distinguishable from other ultra-rich around the world? I mean, they have like their own kind of lifestyle that is like the more opulent, the better. And I'm always sort of curious, like, it's like they're seeking uh, legitimacy from the West while all their money is coming from this uh, authoritarian dictator. And there's a little bit of a uh, uh, an irony there. Oh, it's not just that they're seeking legitimacy from the West. They're, they're arbitraging the rule of law. Um, one of the reasons that it's smart for an oligarch to get as much of their assets offshore as possible is they don't have the rule of law in Russia. They know what happened to Khodorovsky. The more assets they keep in Russia, the more they make available for Putin to strip for them if, if they get out of line, strip yeah. from them if they get out of line. So right. and as an insurance policy for themselves, any smart oligarch will want to have their assets not in Russia. And they know perfectly well that as their own country kind of crumbles under the weight of almost unbearable levels of corruption, the democracies that they're undermining in the West also provide them the legal protections that they crave. They just don't want to pay for it. So they have these great deals like in London where you can, you can live the high life in Mayfair or London grad as they call it, but not pay the tax of a British resident. Um, it's sort of a, an accounting legal sort of trick by which you classify yourself in such a way that you're not subject to full UK taxation. It's a great deal because you get to not only be rich, but stay rich because the, the costs of maintaining the rule of law and protection for your property rights and your good name are borne by the little people who can't afford wealth managers to get their assets offshore. What a deal, right? And you get to live at a standard that is hard to replicate in Russia where um, to my knowledge, it's still the case that 20% of Russians still don't have indoor plumbing. Wow. So you're right in that what's going on here is status competition between Russian oligarchs and all the other oligarchs. But all, that's what oligarchs do. That's what people do. And this is where sociology, which is my field, can be kind of handy because economists don't deal with this stuff. Um, psychologists don't deal with it because this is really a, a social or interpersonal phenomenon. It's a group phenomenon. What is status? Individuals don't define that. And money, crucially, is not the primary defining mark of status. You can be a very rich person and not have a lot of social status. On the contrary, you can have a lot of social status without wealth. You could probably rattle off a, a couple of well-known human rights campaigners who are middle class or even poor, but they have enormous status and respect in the eyes of the whole world. So the, the game that human beings play is competing for status either with the help of money or independently of whatever wealth they may or may not have. And you know, when people ask, why is it never enough for billionaires to be rich? Why do you see people like Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson and Elon Musk using their wealth in these strange ways to like not only try and go into space, but to try and outcompete each other on how quickly they can get a rocket into space. And the answer is they're not status competing with the world. They're status competing with other oligarchs. And in that rarefied world, there is never enough because there's always another yacht. There's always another villa. And when you get done buying yachts and villas, there's always space. And who knows what else 
in the future. Immortality probably is in there somewhere. When when you talk about this uh, and you talk about these people being in this sort of status race and all the ways in which they were able to park money, spend money, uh, be around money, I have to help but think of the systems that allowed these oligarchs who got all of their money from someone like Putin and had to stay quiet as a result of being beholden to him. Putin's egregiousness did not start last week when he invaded Ukraine, right? This is a very long history of abused power and policies that don't jive with any Western values or sit well with anybody who's bothered to pay attention to them. So this is money that was taken from people who we don't agree with and who were doing terrible things for many years. I'm so curious about your take on on what the West's responsibility was and how we sort of bear responsibility for not doing something sooner than last week and the complicity that financial institutions and society has engaged in, in allowing these people to amass more and more things and power outside of Russia over the last several decades. Um, I'm just checking my email for an article someone sent me from the Financial Times in which they report that Credit Suisse is asking investors to destroy documents linked to oligarch and tycoon yacht loans. Mm. So um, they knew. All the facilitators of course they did. in wealth management, organizations and individual wealth managers, they knew that they were facilitating something bad. In fact, when I spent eight years going all over the world to... 18 tax havens in far-flung locales and sort of hobnobbing with the wealth managers I had trained to join, I found that about a quarter of the 65 people I interviewed were deeply, deeply conscience-stricken by the nature of their work, the way it was um, exacerbating wealth inequality to untenable levels globally, the way it was undermining democracy and distorting democracy, and the way that they were facilitating corruption. 25% of the people I interviewed just said it flat out. Everyone I interviewed was a highly intelligent, skilled professional and a worldly one at that. None of them were naive. They had a variety of rationalizations they employed. And I, I wrote about that in my book and I published an article specifically about this back in, in 2018 in a journal called Human Relations. And it was just kind of an investigation of like, how do professionals rationalize misconduct to themselves? And I'm convinced that that subset that I looked at, the subset I found who were really conscience stricken, these are the people who are leaking the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers and the Pandora Papers and Swiss leaks. There's a reason those, those leaks are coming out at a, an increasingly rapid clip from offshore. It used to be there were years and years that would pass between those things. And now they're coming faster and faster because it's hard to bear this knowledge that you're facilitating the looting of whole countries, the immiseration of whole peoples, and ultimately, as we're seeing in Ukraine, the likely commission of war crimes. And one of the things your, your question implies is, could, could this have been stopped sooner? And the answer is, of course. It could have been stopped many years ago. It could have been stopped when the Syrian war started. It could have been stopped when it was reported that the same offshore fund was supporting both the Brexit campaign and the Trump campaign to get around campaign finance laws in both the UK and the US. It could have been stopped an infinite number of times previously, but it wasn't stopped because the money was too good. I mean, the whole premise of sending these Russian oligarchs out into the West, as, as I mentioned before, it's not just so they can enjoy their villas in Italy. It's so that they can use money as a universal solvent to dissolve the bonds of civil society, to dissolve the walls that used to protect democracy from foreign interference and manipulation, to dissolve the safeguards that in Western societies used to prevent the rich from hoarding 
society's wealth to such an extent that nobody else has a chance. The 2024 election means this year is going to be chock full of drama and nail-biting suspense. You deserve a politics and news podcast with expert analysis. No spin, no BS, just trusted journalists talking about what you need to know. I'm David Plotz, and each week on Slate's Political Gab Fest, I sit down with The New York Times' Emily Bazelon and CBS News' John Dickerson to do just that. Join us as we unpack the latest in politics, news, and the courts. Listen to The Political Gab Fest every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Talk to us for a minute uh, about Alexei Navalny. So he's somebody who's come out and identified the specific oligarchs who form this sort of feudal system that Putin set up. You know, he's called them thieves, right? And you know, some of them uh, are people that have also had associations with the Trump campaign, as, as you mentioned there. What's his story? And if you can, just tell us about him and what his status is. So Alexei Navalny is a remarkably brave man on the level of President Zelensky of Ukraine. In that, you know, having, having watched many other anti-corruption campaigners get thrown into a penal colony or their wealth seized or being poisoned, even when they thought they were safe overseas outside of Russia, he still stood up and has dedicated his life for more than a decade to calling out Putin's corruption and trying to challenge him and to rally the Russian people to rise up against him. So when you read about people poo-pooing oligarch sanctions and saying, oh, this is just a uh, performative. The oligarchs don't tell Putin what to do. And sanctions are just meant to make the West feel like they're doing something. I would confront that with Alexei Navalny's list. So he's already survived a poisoning for his anti-corruption activities. And because he lived, Putin's thrown him in a penal colony from which he issued this list of 35 people to be disseminated to the world. The, the rationale for the list is, if you want to stop Putin, you must sanction these 35 oligarchs. They're, of course, not the only oligarchs. There are many more. But these 35 are the, the central ones who must be sanctioned in order to make a dent in Putin's grip on power. So like, who would know better than Alexei Navalny whether sanctioning oligarchs would work? And why would he risk what little freedom he has to put this list of 35 names out there if it was performative window dressing to make the West feel better. You could also ask, why is Roman Abramovich, who isn't sanctioned anywhere, scrambling to sell off his assets, making public that if he can sell the Chelsea Football Club, he'll donate the proceeds to rebuilding Ukraine? Like, there is some fairly frantic reputation protection going on among oligarchs who are and are not sanctioned, who, who have had assets seized and who have not yet had assets seized. That's hard to explain. What do you make of that franticness? I, what I make of it is that the sanctions work. Even the threat of real sanctions for the first time is absolutely meaningful and absolutely effective. Yeah, just explain how they work. I understand what, what's happening. We see um, we see this frantic behavior. So just explain what is behind that frantic behavior and what comes next after that, after they try and unload all of these things, then what? I don't think anyone knows then what. I mean, one of the, the things that makes this period of time so exciting and so uh, scary, reminiscent to me of the fall of the Berlin Wall, is that forces have been unleashed here that are unpredictable even to the people who unleash them. So I think it's pretty clear that Putin did not expect the Ukrainians to fight back or to fight back as successfully as they have. Mm. So he unleashed tank columns on them, and yet Ukraine is not taken. He's bombing civilians, and yet what was supposed to be sort of a quick and dirty capture of a sovereign country, or maybe as he regards it, a, 
a rogue province, it hasn't happened yet. By the same token, Putin has unleashed legal and economic forces that no one has ever seen unleashed before. I never thought that I would live to see this day. I've been immersed in the world of offshore and the ultra-rich for 15 years. I have seen many, many efforts to pull together coalitions of leading tax havens, including the U.S., for many years. Almost all of them have failed. Some of them have only succeeded partially in their aims. I've certainly never seen the united front that we're seeing now between the U.S., the U.K., Switzerland, and the EU. This is extraordinary. And it seems to be meaningful enough that we're seeing oligarchs do this scrambling to either sell their assets or move their assets to places where they cannot be seized by sanctions. So, for example, what sanctions might mean, there are different kinds of sanctions, but one of the sanctions um, types that we're seeing is if it can be determined that you purchased an asset using the proceeds of criminal activity or fraudulent activity, that asset can be seized. So that, as I understand it, was the basis for the Germans seizing Alisher Usmanov's big yacht in Hamburg yesterday. Right. Um, why does that matter? Well, if they can seize your yacht, they can also potentially seize your property and your other asset holding structures, including offshore accounts. Those accounts may hold, say, controlling shares in the company that makes you rich. Mm. So that would be bad. Also, as we learned from the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers and the Pandora Papers, those offshore accounts is how Putin are how Putin himself holds his own personal wealth offshore in the name of others. So in the Panama Papers, we saw that Putin's childhood friend, the cellist, um, Sergei Vordugan, um, a cellist, Putin's childhood friend, was exposed in the Panama Papers as having millions of dollars worth of wealth in offshore accounts. How would a cellist even acquire that wealth, much less what would be the motivation yeah. for stashing it offshore. So that's the sort of thing that leads people to say, well, you see, like a mob boss, Putin is very careful not to own assets in his own name. He owns assets in the names of close friends, relatives, their families, people he can trust. So if you start seizing those assets, Putin's going to get mad because maybe those assets actually belong to him. That's his wealth. Yeah. Secondarily, there's this status problem, which I would characterize as there is no point in looting your own country's wealth if you can't show it off and rub everyone's face in it. Mm. <laughs> right. Well, I was going to ask you about that. The flip side of status is public humiliation. Right? Stigma. Stigma. And I, and I was wondering about that because, you know, that is a pressure point, uh, not just taking the stuff, but pointing your finger at these people and attaching them to these horrible images we're seeing in Ukraine. Cancel culture, if you will. Yeah. And yeah. I, I'm positive that one of the reasons people on the right wing and to some extent on the left wing are so vehemently opposed to this amorphous thing they call cancel culture, which is really this, this practice as old as human beings are of, shaming and shunning people who do wrong in society in order to protect society and deter other people from doing wrong. The reason people object to it is because it works. And in fact, it works much better than laws do. There was a, a small study done by the British, the UK Revenue Authorities a couple of years ago that really validates this very sociological perspective. Um, they were trying to crack down, as many countries are, on the abuse of offshore by the ultra-wealthy. So they did a little survey of ultra-wealthy taxpayers in the UK and their wealth managers. And they said, just hypothetically, if we found that you were cheating on your taxes, tell us how you would respond to the following three consequences. Consequence one, we impose a fine. Consequence two, we take you to court. Consequence three, we print your, news, your name in the newspaper if 
we find that you're guilty of tax fraud. The first two consequences generated a shrug at best. Most of the fines that tax authorities impose on oligarchs are like at the level of the change that you and I might find between the couch cushions. As for court cases, the best attorneys in the world already work for the oligarchs and they can fight a war of attrition against any government in the world and be likely to win. They'll, they'll basically drag it out and drag it out the way Trump does until the other side gives up and runs out of money. But the thing that really touched a nerve with these ultra-wealthy UK taxpayers and their professional enablers was the idea of public shaming by having their name printed in the newspaper. Mm. This is counterintuitive to many policymakers. And I've seen this so many times, I've really given it a lot of thought. I think that many policymakers are trained in economics or trained in law, and they just never think about things like social norms or stigma or status as levers they can pull. But as a sociologist, what I always tell them is, That's, those are your most effective levers. It's much quicker than changing laws. Lawmaking in democracies is a long, hard slog and a contested slog. You have a much better chance of simply using existing social forces, which are almost cost-free because they already exist. Of course, you have to use them carefully. You don't want to be accusing people falsely of committing fraud or any other crime. But there are a lot of people we know of who are caught dead to rights who never never get the shaming that, frankly, I think many of us would think they deserve for ripping off those of us who can't afford to go offshore and making us bear the costs of the society whose benefits and privileges they enjoy, including the Russian oligarchs. Yeah. It's funny because I think of them as shameless, right? I always think of like nouveau riche accumulation of wealth and kind of like, you know, tasteless, gigantic boats as like a, a sign of no shame. But, mm. um, you know, and, and we think of Trump that way too, right? A shameless person, like you can't really embarrass him, right? And yet, I guess it really is like uh, their peers and the people they are seeking status with that they are also levers of that. I mean, if, if Roman Abramovich, despite being wealthy and having all these investments in London, is iced out of London society, maybe that has an effect. You're exactly right. And in sociology, we call those reference groups. People don't seek status from everybody. Like, I don't seek to impress the entire population of the little town where I live because I don't know most of the people. They're not my reference group. But I seek to retain the, the good opinion of people I do know who are in my reference group, my colleagues, my family, my friends. That's true for all human beings. So the fact that journalists are seeing Trump not being subject to shame by them is, is like a classic categorical error made by people who haven't taken a sociology class. And so that's one of my missions is to try and educate people on these very, very simple, basic concepts like just because someone can't be shamed by you doesn't mean that they're shameless. And it's kind of right. obvious when you think about it, but like, look at all the trouble Trump went to, to cultivate the good opinion of Vladimir Putin. I mean, even before he was president, years before that, um, yeah. all, the, all the, the tweets and rigmarole about locating the Miss Universe contest in Moscow and literally writing something that you would find on a, a third grader's valentine like, won't you be my best friend forever, Vladimir? Yeah. So Putin and the oligarchs and Trump and the American oligarchs, they are completely shameable, but not by people like you and me. Um, right. I mean, there's even an argument that like conceivably they're slightly shameable in a face-to-face -face setting. Like remember all the furor about Sarah Huckabee Sanders being refused service in a restaurant years ago? Right. Like that sort of thing is an annoyance, but mostly they just get mad about it. But what strikes fear into their hearts is, oh my God, I can't go to the Cannes Film Festival anymore. No one will come to my party on my yacht in the Mediterranean. Who will I eat lunch yeah. with in St. Bart's? Let's take uh, Alexei Navalny's um, logic to its conclusion. Okay, so you have these 35 oligarchs who are considered the sort of top infrastructure of Putin's power, right? 
and we somehow kind of mitigate their power or reduce it or we send them scurrying back home or they disconnect from the mothership because they're trying to protect their wealth and they no longer owe Putin anything or they don't fear him for one reason or another. I'm just curious. I mean, and maybe it's hard for us to sort of imagine uh, how those dominoes would fall, but how does that weaken him? Well, first of all, there's been a series of very significant status injuries to Putin. So you probably saw the news a couple days ago that Putin was stripped of his honorary black belt by the World Taekwondo Foundation. Mm. Yeah, yes, yes. Like, and you might look at that understandably and say, well, so what? Like, first of all, why would they bother? Second of all, why is that news? Like, he's murdering people in Ukraine. Like, let's move on to more important things. The reason it's important is that it's a status injury and oligarchs, all leaders, depend on legitimacy to rule. Oligarchs in particular depend on being seen as legitimate enough and fearsome enough that A, you should respect them, but B, even if you don't respect them in your heart, you better fear them for real because they will hunt you down and kill you. And I'm sure that is going through the mind of all the oligarchs who are speaking out against him right now. Every little bit of legitimacy that can be peeled away from an autocrat is a valuable act. So the stripping of the honorary black belt is just peeling away a teeny tiny like square centimeter of his legitimacy. It's a much bigger deal to say Oleg Deripaska is publicly saying, no man, come on, back it up. We got to have peace. Um, Because that signals dissension in the ranks. That signals weakness in the world of mob bosses and autocrats alike. Because, and this is why Putin strives so hard to control the media, right? And why some of the, the names on that list that Alexei Navalny compiled, only 35 names, right? At least two of them are major media figures on the RT state television network. Why? Because they are essential in creating this image of unified, unbroken support for the autocrat. And any cracks that appear in that facade weaken him domestically and internationally. Yeah. Well, I think if you look at the cracks, it's so clear that this reputational sort of chipping away at both the oligarchs and at Putin can be effective. The U.S. is obviously trying to figure out how we could possibly start chipping further, faster, harder. And we saw earlier this week, President Biden announced a new initiative to claw back some of these resources and really start working at uh, chipping away at both the wealth and uh, the reputation of these oligarchs who are living in the U.S. And I know that you, you told us before we started recording that you heard this and reached out to the Justice Department. Tell us a little bit about what you made of the announcement earlier this week and then how you tried to get in touch and what you encountered when you did. So when I when I saw the announcement yesterday that there was a klepto capture task force that was going to be run out of the Department of Justice, I was so thrilled because I've worked with groups like that in Europe I I spent a big chunk of my career working in Denmark and Germany and just came back to the U.S. about three years ago. When I was in Europe, the Panama Papers story broke, and that's when I began being um, called to work with the EU Parliament, um, the government of Denmark, the, the tax agencies of many different countries, the OECD, the World Bank, to talk to them about what I knew about offshore and oligarchs and how to untangle these webs of offshore structures that were designed to obscure who owns what. Because you cannot impose sanctions legally unless you can say that the sanctioned person owns the assets. And that's what these offshore structures are designed to obscure. So I, I have this very esoteric form of expertise that enables me to help do that. So I thought, oh, at last I'll be able to serve my country. You know, I'm a middle-aged woman who was never in the military. I can't 
run over to Ukraine and help them defend their country, but I can use my expertise to help in this other way. Plus, I, I have a track record of doing it successfully in the EU. So I started making some calls. Um, I called, there's no contact number in the Department of Justice uh, press release about the Klepto Capture Tax Force, but it is stated that the project will be run out of the office of the Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco. So I called the Department of Justice, asked to be transferred to her office, and I spoke to a very nice staff member of hers who told me that she didn't know what I was talking about. And when I referred to the the press release from the Department of Justice, she had to look it up. Um, and eventually she she said, well, we, we can't really help you here, but maybe you should talk to the investigative wing, which turned out she transferred me to the FBI's tip line. Oh my God. So I ended up um, on hold for a long time and then talking to another very nice person who works for the FBI, who before I could clarify anything, asked me to give my name, date of birth, address, and social security number, and then asked, what is your tip? And I had to explain that I didn't want to give a tip, that I was just trying to volunteer to help the Klepto Capture Task Force. And then she said, oh, so I asked around and you need to go on the FBI's job bulletin board and apply for a job. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I've got a job. I don't want a job at the FBI. I just would like to volunteer to consult, which is something that government agencies do with academics all the time. How do I find someone to offer this to? And uh, the very nice person at the FBI said, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know how to help. Um, and because this initiative had been announced at the White House or from the White House a couple days ago, I then called the White House and wow. talked to a gentleman who also didn't know what I was talking about. So I sort of explained what a klepto capture task force was going to be. And he said, just a minute. And he went off, put me on hold. And I thought, okay, this is it. They're going to point me to the right person. He came back and he said, call NATO. Oh my gosh. And I'm like, do you understand that NATO is a military defense alliance? They don't have anything to do with economic sanctions. And they sure as heck don't have like a phone number for random civilians like me to call them. So now it's become it's become a joke in my family. Um, whenever my kid asks me something like, you know, what time is it, mom? I'm like, call NATO. That story is um, a little demoralizing, I'm going to say right up front. Um, and, and kind of interesting because... Our government, as big and sophisticated as it is, and the governments of Europe who are banding together, we hear about all these things they're going to do, like send weapons to Ukraine and do different things. But at the end of the day, they're bureaucratic and slow moving and they're inaccurate and they're not always effective. And some would argue, you know, mainly not effective. But, you know, and, and meanwhile, you're, you know, you're talking about in your book and in your writings about the ways in which these ultra-rich and the oligarchs are basically like, you know, doing shell games with their money so nobody can find it, right? And now I'm thinking, now they're probably just, uh, in, you know, what about cryptocurrencies? You know, can't they just, there's a ways, they're going to be able to outrun, you know, a klepto capture task force that doesn't, nobody even knows exists, apparently. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm feeling a little bit disheartened by this story. Well, I'm almost afraid to comment on crypto because the crypto enthusiasts of the world get very hot under the collar if you say anything critical of the crypto system, and especially if a woman says it. So um, I, I will answer your question with some trepidation. But I, I don't think crypto is a solution here, even though crypto is supposed to be a solution for exactly this kind of problem. What if your government gets isolated by the world financial system? What if you get sanctioned? Haha, ha, crypto is the sort of libertarian panacea for that. Except the people who think that, it's like they've never met an actual human being or noticed how human beings work. Remember how I said at the beginning, there's no point in being an oligarch if you can't be ostentatious about it, if, if you can't show off all the wealth that you've looted? You can't yeah. do that with crypto. I mean, people can try. They can say, "Who? hey, baby, look at my crypto wallet. 
that's not going to get anyone a date at a bar. Um, and it's, it's not going to, it's not going to work in the reference group that oligarchs have. Remember mm -hmm. I was mentioning like reference groups and how even very powerful people you'd think would be laughing all the way into the bank at any public criticism of them are, are among the most thin skinned people in the world. As it turned out, that was one of the most surprising findings of my research by the same token they are very active in the business of status competition with the people who matter to them, not you and me, but other oligarchs. It really does not cut the mustard in a world where oligarchs compete with big, splashy, visible symbols of their wealth, whether it's Italian villas or mega yachts or the giant penis rockets being launched into space by, by various individuals. You cannot do that with crypto. It has to be something that you can show off that's material. Right. The, the, the status jockeying here is just completely illuminating and also makes me feel like ill-begotten billionaires are really just like us or it's just the high school cafeteria with incredibly high stakes that have national security implications. And it's unbelievable to think about them in that lens and it's why we're so grateful to have you here today to really explain this in terms that underscore the psychology behind this money and these people behind the money. And it's completely illuminating. And I know that as things continue to unfold, we will value your opinion here and may have you come back and explain even more uh, about why these people do what they do and what we think that they may do from here, given their, their profiling that you've done. So thank you so much for taking the time and going through this with us. It was just so helpful to hear. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And that's our show this week. I'd like to thank our guest, Brooke Harrington, and my co-host, Emily Jane Fox. Thanks to our producer, Brett Fuchs, good people at Cadence 13 who helped make this podcast happen. Thanks to our sponsors. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And please hit subscribe. Come back next week and the week after. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.